From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The National Western Stock Show and Rodeo is more than entertainment. It's big business for Colorado's $3 billion livestock industry. And its cancellation because of COVID-19 is a blow. Then, President Donald Trump is expected to name his Supreme Court nominee this weekend. We'll hear from Democratic Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. What, from his perspective, is at stake? Also, what do we know about how the novel coronavirus spreads indoors and what can be done to limit it when people have to be inside together? Then the podcast Wild Thing explores the things that capture the imagination, like finding life in outer space. We design messages that should be understandable by any civilization that can create the technology needed to detect the signal. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The National Western Stock Show and Rodeo this January has been canceled, another casualty of the pandemic. To the nearly 700,000 who enjoy the parade and shows, it's a disappointment. To people in Colorado's nearly $4 billion livestock industry, it's a major blow to their business. I'm joined by Linda Sidwell of Sidwell Herefords in Carr, Colorado. Hi, Linda. Hello. Tell me about your disappointment when you learned the stock show had been canceled. <laughs> well, um, uh, at first we would say we were uh, not shocked, um, but extremely disappointed, um, almost to a point of mourning, um, just like you go through the stages of grief. Um, that was kind of what we were like. And uh, fortunately, my husband and I had talked earlier um, in the spring, actually, when the pandemic hit, oh my gosh, what if, what if stock show doesn't happen? And so we just started talking different scenarios and, you know, never in our wildest dreams did we think that would actually come true. And as you were talking through those what ifs, what did you want to see happen? Well, in, in all honesty, um, we love the stock show. We we love the ability to take our livestock and um, spend, we're there 10 days of it, and spending that with our livestock family. So we were hoping in hopes that the um, governor and mayor and the, um, the, stock, the, the board of directors for the stock show would be able to um, work through um, maybe some different variances um, that would allow at least the livestock people to still be able to showcase um, what they've been striving for for well over a year now. And, um, you know, there are other livestock shows that have um, happened throughout the summer. There's livestock shows that are um, slated to happen the end of October in November, and and you know they the the committees have had to put in for variances of, of what would be allowed by the um, state health departments, and they were approved, and the shows are going on. Um, so in all in all reality, that was what we were hoping could happen, um, but in 
then on the other hand, we're looking at it. What if this doesn't happen? We came up with another option and called it our plan B. So we are in full swing on plan B. And what is plan B? Plan B, we will head to, if it, if it still happens, um, Fort Worth Stock Show and Rodeo. And that would be that it, Fort Worth actually starts um, about the middle of National Western dates. But it goes clear into February. So we wouldn't go to Fort Worth until the end of January, beginning of February. So it, it changes our dates a little bit, and it makes us travel further because, let me be really honest, we love being hometown people in Denver. <laughs> and help us understand, why is the National Western Stock Show so important to your business? What makes the National Western important to anyone in the livestock industry is it's the opportunity to stay abreast of what the new genetics are, what the new trends are, um, and it, it keeps your livestock, like for us, we we are a seed stock producer, so we raise the bulls to sell to people for their cows, and it, it's an opportunity for us to keep our livestock out in the public eye. Um, because if you don't, if you don't stay up with the trends, you don't stay up with the genetics, and you don't stay up with keeping your product out there and available, you get left behind in a very quick hurry. And, and who are, so, oh, go ahead. That, go ahead. I was going to say, and so by not having stock show, we do feel as though, um, yeah, a, a lot of, you know, we see a lot of our old customers pass through and see our cattle and visit with us. Um, we, we, we get a lot of new contacts from being there. And, um, you know, in 2019, when we were there, uh, we had a group of uh, gentlemen from Mexico, old Mexico, uh, come in our pen and were extremely interested in our cattle. And they bought every bull we had for sale that year. So buyers are and coming so, from far outside of Colorado. Yes. It, it, it's not just Colorado. It's, it's nationwide. It's international. I mean, they, they have, and that's the one thing we tend to spend most of our time in the stockyard part of it where the yard show and pin show happens and they have an uh an office that is set up for international visitors and the the international visitors can go in there and their stock show staff that helps them find their way through what what they want to look for when they're there and you, as far as, you know, the livestock. Yeah, and you also mentioned that sense of mourning. This is a tradition that's been disrupted. How long has your ranch been affiliated with the stock show? <laughs> um, I, I had to do some research on that. And um, Sidwell Herford's dates back to, originally came from Missouri and um, started there in 1908 but came to Colorado and then started attending stock show in the mid-1930s. So from then to now, Sidwell Herfords has been uh, represented at the National Western. And will you miss the National Western? Is it fun? Um, we will miss it. And, and the definition of fun 
is very different <laughs> for all people. <laughs> um, I know there's a lot of people that think, oh, wow, you're going to stock show and you're going to get to see all these great events and you're going to do go to the rodeo and you're going to go to the trade show and you're going to buy all these things. We go to stock show and yes, we have fun, but that isn't what our fun is. Our fun is getting to see our livestock family. Um, you know, and, and when I say livestock family, I'm talking all breeds of cattle, not just our Hereford friends. It, it, it's it's everyone that we know in the livestock industry, from coast to coast, border to border. That's where you see your your friends once a year. Um, our fun is having our livestock with us. Um, they're just they're just like our children. You know, you you tend to their every need. They, you know, whatever whatever that animal needs you to do, you do it and you enjoy doing it. And because I, I don't know, you just you create a bond with that animal. So our fun is yes, our our work is with us, but we enjoy our work, and that's what makes it fun. So there's a lot of build up to this. I do wonder about the yeah. long term effects. Can you see online sales becoming a bigger part of agriculture as they have in other industries? I I do believe online sales um, are becoming a, a a big player in the livestock industry. There are many of them that that happen all the time. Um, as a matter of fact, a, a good friend of ours just had an online female sale um, two days ago, and it, it seems to be um, becoming more and more popular uh, for people. It is something that we have considered doing, uh, but we are trying to move our genetics in a direction that um, people will, um, uh, what do I want to say, um, demand more of. And so when, when we feel that we've got our genetics built to that point, we ourselves will uh, most likely step out and have some sort of an online sale as well. And I'd like to step back and talk about the bigger picture of the pandemic and your ranching business. Prices for sure. beef at the grocery store spiked last spring, but they've come back down. What kind of impact have you seen from the pandemic in prices and in demand? Well, um, as far as ourselves, I, I mentioned we are seed stock producers. So, you know, we raise the the bulls or the females that, that people will go and build their herds with. So as far as us, uh, um, making a, a market-ready animal for, for fattening for beef to go into a supermarket. We don't do that aspect of it. We start, you know, we have them as the calves and they sell off at six months. But as far as the impact for us, we noticed our bull sales were very, very slow. Uh, one, people were needing bulls, but they were afraid if they could really go and you know if they could come to our place and look at the cattle because oh my gosh you know what if we were around somebody that had it or if the the possible customer would have been around someone that had the mm. you know uh coronavirus exposure or whatever um, yeah it, it was a Lin fearful thing linda i'm sorry we're gonna have to wrap up there but thank you so much for joining us linda sidwell runs sidwell herfords with her husband brian in car colorado there will be no national western stock show and rodeo this january because of the coronavirus it's only the second time the event has been canceled in its hundred plus year history
President Donald Trump is expected to name his Supreme Court nominee this weekend, the first step toward a Senate vote that will come over the vehement objections of Democrats, including Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado. Senator, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Avery. The president said Wednesday that he expects the election will ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court, and he wants a full nine-member panel there to rule. Later in the day, he refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power if he loses the election. Do you think this election will end up in the hands of the Supreme Court and that there may not be a peaceful transition? I hope not. I, I, in, my life, in, in the history of this country, we have never had a president a Republican or a Democrat who's saying the kind of things that Donald Trump is saying at this point. He's, he's become unhinged, and, um, and, the, and, and we don't want a situation where the court is making this decision. So the best thing that we can do is vote him out of office and do it in a way that's convincing. And I, I think that his record is one that has earned that. Uh, and, uh, and so my hope is that in Colorado and across the country, fair-minded people of every party will support a nominee in, in Joe Biden who actually believes in the rule of law and believes in our democracy. That, that seems to me like a threshold question for somebody uh, to be the president, and I, and I think Donald Trump has disqualified himself. If the new justice is confirmed by Election Day, should she recuse herself from participating? Uh, I think that the new justice should recuse themselves from, from participating, yes. And do you think that this might just be a ploy, that the president is trying to get voters who support him and his judicial nominations to the polls? He's going to do absolutely everything he can to get his supporters to the polls and suppress the vote of uh, Americans that are voting against him. That is why he's been attacking uh, successful mail-in ballots like the one in Colorado for months and months and months and months. And I think we all need to push back on that uh, by casting our ballots, casting our mail ballots, and making sure that he's a one-term president. Now, wouldn't the Democrats do the same thing, work at maximum speed if they had the chance to appoint a justice? Well, I, I think that we have destroyed the, 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 the Senate's responsibility to advise and consent on judicial nominees. That's happened in the time that I've been here. When I was in law school, uh, if you were a qualified justice or a qualified appointee, you got 96 votes or you got 98 votes. Justice Ginsburg, I think, got 95 votes. Scalia got more than 90 votes. So this is a relatively new phenomenon, and it's mostly the cause of Mitch McConnell. He's not the the sole cause of it, and in and, and in an honest anybody who honestly looks at this would have to say both parties have been involved in this. But what Mitch McConnell has done here is so reprehensible because he did not allow Merrick Garland to come for a vote, saying that the people had to decide, and that was 340 days or so before an election. Here we're 40 days before an election, and he's pushing through the Supreme Court. So it's exactly the opposite of what he did, and I, I would hope Democrats wouldn't do the same thing. Now, some Democrats say if the party takes over the Senate in November, they should move to increase the size of the Supreme Court. Your thoughts? My thoughts are that we need to win these elections and we need to send Mitch McConnell back to Kentucky. We need to send Donald Trump back to Mar-a-Lago and start governing on behalf of the American people again. And I think that's what our focus should be.
And there's a huge policy issue before the Supreme Court right now, and that's the Affordable Care Act. The justices will hear arguments shortly after the election, and experts say the results could be impacted by the vacancy or by a new justice. You said there is now, uh, using your words here, an existential threat to the ACA. From a policy perspective, what should Democrats be doing now to prepare in case that happens? I think what we need in this country is universal health care. And I believe, having traveled our state, which is a third Democratic, third Republican, and a third Independent, that people in Colorado want everybody to be covered. They want us to do it at a cheaper price, and they want us to make sure that uh, we maintain the quality of our system. And I think we can do that. Uh, And what I believe we need to do is pass a public option to give everybody in America the chance Uh, to have a choice whether they want to stay on their private insurance or they want a plan administered by Medicare. And I think that we should have the federal government negotiate drug prices so that we can get those costs under control as well. And before we go, I want to go back to the idea of increasing the Supreme Court. Would you support, if you had to vote, increasing the size of the Supreme Court? I think that right now the number one job before us is winning this election, and then we're going to have to have a discussion about all kinds of things. But until then, it's pointless to have the conversation. Mitch McConnell is the majority leader of the Senate, and Mitch McConnell can expand the Supreme Court and give Donald Trump two more nominees if that's what he wants to do. So I think we're... What we should be focused on is winning these elections and making sure these arsonists that are burning down our democracy no longer have the opportunity to do it. And what is your view on protests? On protests? My view on protests is that that what gives me hope that our democracy is still alive are the protests that we've seen all over uh, the country, in Denver, across the country, the protests that led the state legislature in Colorado to pass the first uh, police accountability, uh, modern police accountability bill in the country. That's what gives me hope. You know, finally, to see people uh, in power responding to uh, people that are peacefully protesting in the streets. And that's a wonderful thing, in my judgment. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Avery. Michael Bennett is the Democratic senator from Colorado. We've invited Republican Senator Cory Gardner on to talk about the Supreme Court as well. Let's bring in CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim now. Hi, Caitlin. Hey, Avery. What do you make of what Senator Bennett just said about what's happening now with the replacement process for Justice Ginsburg? I thought there were some interesting things that Senator Bennett had said. Um, I know that you had pushed him about the the packing of the courts. Um, that's it, There's been talk about potentially increasing it from nine justices to 11 total. Um, that was something that was brought up in, in the presidential primary. Um, a couple of people had talked about it. I, I think that's kind of interesting because some of the Democrats here haven't really been, at least in the Senate here, have not really been focusing on that or commenting on that. I think what they, what they have been saying and what uh, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has been saying is, Everything is on the on the table. Nothing is off the table. Um, and that is one of the things. I think the other thing that I thought that um, Senator Bennett said that was interesting was that, you know, he does talk about the history of this and that both parties are sort of have been involved in this tit for tat that's been going on over the Supreme Court and just over the Supreme Court justices and how partisan it's gotten over the last uh, decade or two. And we've also asked for an interview with Republican Senator Cory Gardner. So far, he's only released a statement. 
Yes, that's right. That was late Monday. And he said he supported and will continue to support judicial nominees who protect the Constitution, who do not legislate from the bench and who will uphold the law. And Gardner added that if a qualified President Trump nominates a qualified nominee who meets that that criteria, he will vote to confirm. And now that's different from what Gardner and other Republicans said in 2016. Right. Uh, And in March of 2016, when President Obama nominated uh, Merrick Garland, uh, Gardner said at the time that the next election was too soon and that the stakes were too high and that the American people deserve a role in the process because the next Supreme Court justice will influence the direction of the U.S. for years to come. You know, that was nine months before the election. This time around, it's uh, less than six weeks before the election. And and many of, the same, many of the Republicans that made that same argument four years are saying now that the circumstances are different. You know, Democrats held the presidency then, Republicans the Senate. Now Republicans control the presidency and the Senate. And the other argument that you're hearing was President Obama was a lame duck president who could not run for another term. That is not the case for President Trump. And you spoke with a Republican strategist about what might be ahead. What is he saying? Yes, I spoke with Tyler Sandberg, and he thinks the nomination process is only going to create more tension, more animosity, more anger in American politics. He said it was like sort of pouring gasoline on, quote, a dumpster, like what has already been a, quote, dumpster fire year. Um, It's going to get ugly. And you're seeing some of that right now in the Senate. And let's talk briefly about the confirmation process. How will that look? Well, so there is no official timeline yet, but if the stars align and the stars will have to align, Republicans could be on track for a vote about a week before the election. Republicans point to the quick confirmations of past justices like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sandra Day O'Connor, John Paul Stevens. I would point out that was in 1993, 1981, and 1975, respectively. Like, John Paul Stevens didn't even get a question on abortion. The confirmation process more recently has taken more time and has been far more contentious, with the last several taking over 60 days from nomination to confirmation. So we'll see if they can actually do it, but they are hoping to get it done or possibly get it done before Election Day. And let's talk briefly about the confirmation, or rather, Cory Gardner is up for re-election in November, and his seat is one of the most closely watched races in the nation because it could determine the balance of power in the Senate. How does this play into the timing of a nomination vote? You know, this is going to be interesting. I talked with Joshua Wilson. He's a politics professor at the University of Denver. He said um, this might be an opportunity too big for Republicans to pass, because, you know, it is it, it'll build a lasting insulated fortress to defend their interests, um, Republican interests on the courts. And if it costs them a couple of seats, including Gardner, so be it. Um, keep in mind, this U.S. Supreme Court is supposed to be nonpartisan. Well, Caitlin, I want to thank you so much for your additional perspective. Thank you, Avery. CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter, Caitlin Kim. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Back in 2015, Colorado made national headlines with the bust of a huge pot smuggling ring. They were producing thousands of pounds of pot and shipping it out of state, in some cases using skydiving planes for sale in the black market. What happens when legalizing weed actually enables illegal activity? On the latest episode of On Something, find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Schools, restaurants, offices are doing everything they can, scrubbing, disinfecting, and filtering to keep the coronavirus from spreading. And some are spending a lot of money to keep their spaces infection-free. The problem is there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution, and many approaches just aren't effective. Harry Pliskin is president of Denver-based Atrio. He works with businesses and organizations to improve indoor air quality. Pliskin has worked with hospitals on air quality for two decades. Harry, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Since the pandemic began, researchers have learned a lot about how the virus spreads. What do we know about what works and what doesn't to clear an area of the novel coronavirus? Well, there are really two areas that um, we should focus on. Number one is the infrastructure, the building that you're in, and people. And um, it's pretty widely accepted that uh, transmission happens through the air, so you have to make sure your air is clean. Um, in order to do that, you need ventilation, a lot of uh, outdoor air coming in, um, filtration, and you need the right mix of solutions. With people, you need to follow the protocol, wash hands, socially distance, and wear masks. And how is the coronavirus, how does it spread differently than other viruses that you've worked to help could limit the spread? Well, for example, in, um, in hospitals, hospitals have dealt with um, infections for quite some time, and um, they, it, it's a struggle I- internally. And they have cleaned, they've disinfected, and then they try to treat um, the air. Um, this virus is not all that different, except that uh, it spreads uh, through the air. And it's not something that um, is on a... Uh, on a table. So um, you have to treat the air, and treating the air is a complicated um, situation. And today, you have so much information coming in um, from vendors, from regulators, from researchers, all weighing in on this exact issue. How do you how do you keep your um, facility safe? And obviously, we're talking a lot about air. I have heard about workers in the New York subway scrubbing down surfaces late at night or schools spending hours disinfecting classrooms. Does that mean that we know now that these approaches aren't effective? Well, it's not that it's a bad thing to clean uh, the subways or classrooms and um, to make uh, the surfaces and everything inside the classroom, for example, a lot cleaner. But that... Um, the real issue with with uh, COVID-19 is that people come into the room. So you can clean the room, disinfect the room. If two people come in and one is infected, there is the risk of transmission through the air. And it's sort of a wild west for many businesses that haven't thought that hard about, about indoor air quality until the pandemic set in. How do you assess what a place needs? Yeah, well, that is the most difficult question and companies organizations have been hit with you know um, like a quadruple whammy here they were hit with the virus then they were hit with uh, lost business and then they are inundated with information and then they have to figure out um, how to get the right product right solution at the right price and that is um, very difficult they should there are steps they should go through. They should collect the information, be able to analyze it, determine the best mix, then determine what's the most cost-effective solution, and then 
most importantly, you have to be able to verify that the solution you implement is, is working. And that's a big challenge. And what kinds of mistakes do you see business owners doing that don't really help clean the air? Yeah, so um, the, the biggest mistake that I see is that people will overspend because you have a situation where there's uh, panic, fear, anxiety. Um, people feel like they have to bring either students back into schools or customers into restaurants, patients into hospitals, and they have to do it immediately because um, they need the revenue and they need um, the business. They, um, they're very susceptible to all of these claims where people show up and say, our product will solve all things COVID. And that's most likely, well, it's almost definitely not the case. And so you have to be able to wade through all of this information. And, um, you know, most people don't have scientists in-house who can do that. So you don't know what's true and what's not. Um, it takes a lot of work to figure that out. One of those products that people have rushed out even to buy for their homes are, he are HEPA filters. How effective are they in a house? Yeah, so HEPA filters are um, proven technology. Now, there are true HEPA filters, which, um, you know, meets a certain uh, threshold of um, reducing particle load, 99.97%. Um, then there are HEPA-like filters, which may not be as effective. Um, but in general, they are um, very effective. And if you put them in the places where you spend the most time and you place them um, in the right position, then they will be effective. Do you have a HEPA filter in your house? I do. Now, people worry a lot about airplanes. What kind of indoor air quality improvements can airlines do and how safe mm -hmm. are planes? So airlines, um, airplanes, uh, actually recycle air. They bring air from the outside and um, exchange the air inside very, very aggressively, um, multiple times um, a minute. And so in terms of air exchanges and having uh, cleaner air always in the, uh, in the plane, they do a very good job. And if they run their engines faster, they get bigger air exchanges. Um, the real risk, I think, um, they also have HEPA filters installed in the planes. So they have a lot of outdoor air coming in, so good ventilation, really, and they have um, great filtration HEPA filters. But the real risk is people sitting next to each other, not wearing masks, and not following the protocol. And let's talk about places that don't have air filters at this point. What is the best way to limit transmission of the virus besides obviously wearing a mask? Yeah. Well. Um, in terms of infrastructure, number one, you have to manage your people to do what um, you know, uh, we know helps, wearing masks, washing hands, keeping distance. Um, in terms of infrastructure, it's a much more complicated um, situation. So there you have to be able to pull the right information together. You have to be able to um, analyze it. You have to be able to figure out what mix works best for you if you're in a, um, in a company that has multiple buildings. You're not going to have one size fits all. And then you have to figure out, are the things that are being sold to you really necessary? So, for example, if you have, if somebody's trying to sell you a um, filter to keep the room clean, um, there are a lot of uh, air cleaners out there that talk about install, that they have um, HEPA filters, they have UV, they have 
ionization chambers, and it goes on and on. Well, if the HEPA filter is eliminating 99.97% of the particulates, do you really need the other fancy and very expensive technologies? Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us, Harry. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Harry Pliskin is president of Denver-based Atrio, which helps businesses and hospitals improve indoor air quality. We've been talking about ways to limit the spread of COVID-19 indoors. Is Earth the only planet compatible with life? Or is there something or someone else out there? Colorado journalist Laura Krantz interviews senators, scientists, Navy pilots, and mathematicians to find the answers, all on season two of her podcast, Wild Thing, Space Invaders. Season one of Wild Thing investigated Bigfoot's existence. It got two and a half million downloads and a Hollywood development deal. Laura, thanks for being here. Hey, Laura, would we have you on the line? Yeah, I'm talking right now. Oh, great. I can hear you now. Um, Okay, good. (laughs) Aliens are the idea of the life beyond our solar system. It's the subject of countless books and movies. It really fascinates people. In episode one, you spoke with astronomer Avi Loeb about this question of life in outer space. And so I don't think that we are special or unique. I think it's a sign of arrogance on our behalf to think that we are special. And I think it's a purely scientific program to check for the existence of alien civilizations out there because we exist. This idea that the universe is so huge, it's hard to imagine that there isn't life elsewhere. How do you see this question? Yeah, I kind of see it the same way after doing all this research. I mean, the universe is enormous and we get a really we don't have a really good sense of that. You know, we see a lot of zeros after numbers and we kind of freak out and just stop paying attention or walk away or start to sweat nervously. And I think that if you can really just sort of stop and think about how big the universe is, how many planets there are around stars and how many of those planets might actually be habitable, you start to realize that there's a pretty good chance that there is life out there somewhere else. So I have an idea that our imagination is more limited than the universe. (laughs) Three years ago, a strange object was seen hurtling through our solar system at tremendous speed. Tell us about that object. All right. So this object was called Oumuamua. This was the name that it was dubbed. It also had a uh, a much less lyrical name, more scientific, but most people refer to it as Oumuamua. And it was this interstellar object, and they knew it was interstellar because its trajectory was bringing it into our solar system and then flinging it back out again. It was moving so fast that it was not bound by the sun's gravity, which means that it had to come from somewhere outside our solar system. But it was also moving in a way that kind of had people scratching their heads. They couldn't see a tail behind it like you would see with a normal comet, like an off-gassing of gas and dust and little bits of debris. And they would plot a trajectory for it, and then it would move off of it ever so slightly. So people were kind of wondering, well, what's going on here? Because we can't see why it's moving. And Avi Loeb, who we just heard from, he hypothesized that 
instead of a comet, which is what a lot of scientists were saying it probably was, he hypothesized that maybe we should consider the idea that it could be technological in origin, meaning that it came from some sort of alien civilization, might be something known as a light sail, which is powered by light from the sun. It has a big sail that kind of uses the light from the sun to to push it along. And it could have been just, you know, coming by Earth to take some photos. <laughs> now, your show, it covers a lot of ground from the definition of life to the technology used to search for aliens. Life can mean a lot of things. But in terms of what you might call intelligent life, what's the most convincing argument that you've heard that it exists in some form? Yeah, as much as Avi Loeb's hypothesis is fascinating, there's no way to really prove that. It's really more of a thought exercise. So we don't have the kind of information that would say, yes, definitely, this is some sort of techn technological marvel from an alien civilization. And in fact, we don't really have the kind of evidence that would stack up to scientific scrutiny, at least not yet. But we are having we have so many advances in technology now that we are able to see more of what are called exoplanets these are planets revolving around stars other than our sun and many of them are in this habitable zone this sort of goldilocks zone as it described not too hot not too cold and they might have the resources on them available for life and we're starting to be able to see if, in fact, they actually do have those resources because of our own technology. So there's not so much direct evidence that life, intelligent life is out there. It's just more going back to what we said originally that, you know, we've been sort of bound by our imaginations and the size of the universe and the size of the galaxy and the number of stars with planets out there make you think that there probably is something else. It's just whether we'll be able to meet them. So the search is on. And in the podcast, we hear from what's called a ufologist, Dennis B Balthaser, who believes that aliens landed at Roswell, New Mexico in 1947 and that the government is covering it up. First off, what is a ufologist? So a ufologist is really someone who just has spent a lot of time doing research on UFOs and has read a lot of material um, I don't know that there's necessarily a degree with this. Uh, there wasn't that I could tell. Uh, maybe it's sort of self-granted degree, but it's people who really are passionate about this topic and have spent a lot of time looking into it and reading up and perhaps writing their own books and articles. And what's the story with Roswell and the accusations of government cover-up? So in 1947, um, an object crashed into the desert and left bits of debris all over the desert outside of Roswell. And a ranch hand um, found this debris and he carted it into town to the military base. And there was an, an army airfield in Roswell, the home of the 509th Bomb Division. And this is the bombing division um, that the planes in which dropped the bombs on Japan in uh, World War II. So anyway, he takes this debris to the Army airfield. They go out and they pick up more of the debris and they also bring it back to the Army airfield and they issue a statement saying that they had captured the remains of a flying saucer. And of course, this press release gets picked up by newspapers all over the place. These stories go whizzing around everywhere. Then the next day, the military issues another statement saying that, oh, no, not a flying saucer, just a weather balloon. So this has left a lot of people feeling as though the government is hiding something. Why would they change their story in like 24 hours? Um, why didn't they let anyone else get a good look at the debris? 
why were they, you know, there were supposedly bodies, although there's all kinds of rumors that go around this that don't necessarily have evidence to back them up. But over the decades, these stories have sort of been built up in the American imagination. And then in 1994, the military came out with yet another statement saying that, in fact, it wasn't a weather balloon. It was a monitoring device that went way up into the atmosphere to sort of keep an ear out, for lack of a better term, for the Soviets setting off nuclear bombs. So it was a way to keep track of nuclear stuff. But again, people were saying, oh, you're changing the story again. You already changed it like three times. How can we trust you now? So that's sort of the genesis of Roswell, and I'm definitely hmm. truncating the the story here. <laughs> there are a lot of decades of story to tell. Yeah, uh, let's exactly. Hear, let's hear but from, that kind of gives oh, you a sense of where that comes from. Yeah, and let's hear from Dennis Balthaser himself. He explains why he believes in aliens, even though he's never seen one. They tell me Australia is there, but I've never seen it, so I have to assume it is. And I'm a Christian. That surprises a lot of people. But I'm under the impression if you believe God created everything, that's the end of the story. The Bible doesn't say we're the only thing there is. I just can't think we're the only thing in the universe. This little ball of mud that we live on, there's got to be more out there than that. You spoke with former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid about his involvement in the search for UFOs, unidentified flying objects. And tell us about his role. So Harry Reid was instrumental in getting money for something that was known as ATIP. And this is the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program that was being run out of the Pentagon. The headlines of this were all over the place back in 2017 um, because the news of it became public. But the program officially ran between 2007 and 2012. And Harry Reid, who had gotten some reports about UFOs, thought that these were interesting. But to be clear, clear here, a lot of people, when they hear the term UFO, they think little green men, flying saucers, that kind of thing. And I, when the military is using that definition, they are using it in the literal sense, unidentified flying object. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there. That's not to say that there are people in the military who don't think it's aliens, but the, the key here is it's unidentified. If we knew they were aliens, then we would have identified it. So. You have to stick with unidentified until we know for sure what it is. And so in any case, Harry um, spoke with the two members of the Senate Appropriations Committee who were in charge of the defense budget. And he said, you know, I think we ought to look into this, but we probably ought to do it with what's called black money. And black money is money that is simply just not, you know, they don't line item it in the budget. They sort of tuck it in in little hidden corners. And his feeling uh, it sounds very conspiracy theory oriented. I, I totally thought the same thing. But Harry Reid's uh, statement was, Senator Reid's statement was, you know, people don't like the budget already. And they complain when there's anything in there that seems frivolous or silly. And we just didn't want to deal with people complaining about how there were UFOs in the budget. So that was his argument for why it was considered black money or kept kind of secret. And then the program ran for five years, and supposedly it ran for longer than that, although nobody seems to be able to get a straight answer on if it kept going. And one of the men who was involved in the program or maybe ran the program or had some role in the program, again, all these questions up in the air, he left the Pentagon and he ended up releasing some of those videos that we saw all over the Internet. The Tic Tac, which is this little object that's sort of zooming all over. Um, these were videos that were filmed by military pilots. And those went all over the place. People were fascinated by them. But again, nobody's saying they are aliens. They're just saying we ought to consider that possibility. 
Interesting. Okay, I want to talk about one of the episodes that speculates about how how humans could communicate with aliens, assuming that they have a different way of communicating if they actually ever did meet them. Tell us what you learned. So this was fascinating, and it's highly speculative. We haven't even found aliens yet, so it seems like a little cart before the horse, but it's really fun to think about how would we have a conversation with aliens? How would we get our our motives across or who we are as a people across and who speaks for us? Who is the person that gets to be the representative for Earth to the alien civilization that finds us? Um, you know, I don't know if people saw the movie Arrival, but it's sort of along thinking along those lines. This creatures show up on Earth and all of a sudden we need to figure out how to communicate with them. Um, in the case of the group I spoke with, they're known as METI, which is, which is Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And they are less concerned about aliens showing up on Earth, but they think, what happens if we get a broadcast from a, you know, way out there in space? How are we going to answer back? And likewise, shouldn't we also be sending messages out, which makes it easier for other civilizations to find us? And they're sort of looking at different ways to do this. And one of the central points or central, the key elements to communication, they think, will be math, because the only way we have to communicate right now is really using radio telescopes and radio waves. So if someone were to get those signals, they would have to have a way of getting radio signals. And we're assuming that they are using a similar kind of math to build the technology to be able to get those signals. So that's why they think math might be a universal language. That is fascinating. Um, I know, except that I'm terrible at math, so I'm a little <laughs> bit worried about how these communications will go. <laughs> so maybe you can't be the envoy for Earth. Um, no. Now, there's even been a plan for what we would say to aliens if we came in contact with them. Doug Vakoch is an astro astrobiologist who researches how to send signals to extraterrestrial extraterrestrial civilizations. We design messages that should be understandable by any civilization that can create the technology needed to detect the signal. So that's what we have in common with the aliens. We're sending radio signals, they get them. That means they have a radio receiver. So to clarify, what are the messages they designed? Most of the time, they're just trying to give people a sense of who we are as Earthlings. Um, you know, what does our planet look like? What does our, what do, what are we, we trying to describe what we are? Because you have to think about the fact that another civilization, we might be so foreign, they don't even necessarily recognize us as life, similar to how we might not recognize them as life. There's a lot of hurdles that we have to cross over here. Um, but we're working on the assumptions that, again, like Doug just said in that clip, that they have a similar technology that would be compatible with ours. So we might be able to get some of these this information across. Their most recent message they did in, uh, I think it was 2017 or 2018, they worked with a uh, group in Barcelona to send out a message that had both math and music in it, because mu music is so based on mathematics that they figured mm. that this might be another way to show sort of what we are as a species. And now they're currently working on a project called Hello Universe, which is all the different ways people say hello. But I don't know that there's been a real specific message that we are sending out over and over again in order to try and reach as many different places as possible. 
That is so interesting that music and math are the ways that we have to represent who we are. Uh, you mm-hmm. looked at how aliens are used in movies. What do aliens represent in pop culture? So this was a really fun episode to do. I spoke with a woman who is a professor at, of science fiction at Georgia Tech. And Georgia Tech has this great astrobiology program, you know, very deep in the sciences. And then they have this very cool science fiction program on the side. And she sort of walked me through how aliens have evolved in movies over the decades and how often what's happening with those aliens or how we interact with them interact with them is very reflective of what's going on in society. So if you look at the 1950s, some of the alien movies of that time were like The Blob and uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And both of those are seen as being metaphors for communism, something coming in and taking you over. And, you know, your neighbor seems harmless enough, but then it turns out that they have been turned into a pod person and they are full of, you know, uh, communist sensibilities and they're going to try and turn you into one of them. Uh, So that's sort of the starting point. And then it goes from there. And there is a connection between Colorado and the search for aliens. Just in the last minute we have left, the UFO Watchtower in the San Luis Valley. Explain very briefly what that is. Okay, so there's this very funky watchtower that is built down in the San Luis Valley. It was built by a woman who tried to go out ranching and failed at the ranching and then had heard about all the UFO sightings that happened in that area. So she built sort of a place of pilgrimage for people who wanted to come and see UFOs and have an experience and maybe leave an offering. And in some ways, it's almost like a fate, a place of faith. A lot of people come there because it holds some sort of power and some sort of um, spiritual meaning for them. And that's sort of what this episode gets into is how aliens have become a spiritual uh, symbol for us, replacing traditional religions in some ways. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Laura. Thank you. Laura Krantz is producer and host of Wild Thing. The second episode, which explores the definition of life, is being released today. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. One more time.